The great father of the church, St. Augustine, said, Our hearts are restless till they rest in God. So a spiritual restlessness is a good thing if we understand that we're restless to find things that can only be found in God and in our relationship with God. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with Dr. Richard Mao, professor of faith and public life at Fuller Theological Seminary, where he served for 20 years as the president of the college, a master's in philosophy, and before you joined the faculty, taught philosophy at Calvin College for 17 years, an author, including most recently Restless Faith, Adventures in Evangelical Civility, also Uncommon Decency, Calvinism in the Las Vegas airport, and The Smell of Sawdust. Richard Mao, thank you for being with us. I'm so pleased to be with you. Thanks for having me. You're here on campus to give a lecture, the first annual Richard L. Evans Memorial Lecture, which is intended as an honor for you. We appreciate you coming on campus and being well, able to talk. Well, it certainly is an honor for me. I'm just delighted and honored to be asked to give this lecture. So I'd like to start with the title of your last book, Restless Faith. By now, haven't you figured everything out? Uh, no, I haven't. No. <laughs> I came upon this. Uh, obviously, there's a it's it's a good word in the Christian tradition. The the great father of the church, Saint Augustine, said, "Our hearts are restless till they rest in God." So, a spiritual restlessness is is a good thing if we understand that we're restless to find things that can only be found in God and in our relationship with God. But I'm more and more convinced these days that. Um, it's not that we have all the answers. I, I think it's a good thing to have very strong convictions about things. But uh, I love the psalm that says that God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. There's so many issues that I face these days and that many of us face as people of faith that, that we've never thought about before. You know, I, I never thought about transgender questions when 20 years ago. I really was not very much... Uh, aware of uh, sexual orientation issues. I was raised in a way where we took for granted that women were certain kinds of people and did certain kinds of things, and men were, were, were very different. Drones and artificial intelligence, you know, and the Bible doesn't have answers to those questions. At the same time, we do need to wrestle with those questions as people of faith. So I, I feel like, as the psalmist says, I'm on a path, and I come in around a corner, and I say, oh, Artificial intelligence. Now, I really haven't thought much about that, but I have to shine the light of God's Word on that. I have to think about that in the light of what God has revealed about who I am as a human being. So the question of, can a computer think or be conscious like a human being? That's a good biblical question because we're created in the image of God. What does that mean? We have to be restless in our willingness to explore new ways of asking questions about humanity. I want to think back to the very beginnings of your church education. What do you remember, in either in your home or the first church you went to, to remember what you felt or what you thought? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a complicated question. My father was a pastor. So in many ways, I kind of hated to go to church, not, not, not because <laughs> I, I disliked the content. I've always loved the music of the church, the hymns of the church. Obviously, I've been, always been interested in what it's said in sermons, and, and I, I love 
you know, learning things in Sunday school. But as a pastor's kid, people expected more of me than other kids, you know. And if I ever did anything wrong, well, you know, I, I didn't expect that of you, you know. It's this extra so pressure. I was on display a lot as a, as a pastor's kid in church, and I didn't like that. But I've always loved, I've got to say, in a very special way, the music of the church. This is why I think many of us are very fond of the Tabernacle Choir, and I find them so inspiring. You know? mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite hymn? Yeah, I do. My very favorite hymn is uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Uh, and and I love those lines, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Because I do, you know, I feel that wandering. Prone to leave the God I love. Yeah. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, you know. A hymn like that speaks for me and it speaks to my soul. Humanity and divinity in that hymn. That's a, that's a beautiful, uh, yeah. beautiful hymn. Did you have to ever decide if you believed in God, or was that a given? During my uh, late teenage years, especially when I went on to graduate school, and suddenly I, I've been raised in this evangelical world, just surrounded by belief in Christian practice, and suddenly I'm on university campuses, uh, secular, the radical 60s. It was a tough time for me, and especially when and I campuses began, were one of the hotbeds yeah. of that. And I began to, I became very concerned about civil rights, for example, the struggle against racism. Back home, they didn't talk much about that. They were a little suspicious of Martin Luther King. I, at best, I, I was convinced that the God whom I'd learned about all my life and the God that I felt like I had a personal relationship with was the God who Martin Luther King was talking about, who loved mm-hmm. justice and wanted little boys and girls to live together and in racial harmony and the like. But there were times when I saw the Christian community, the white Christian community, fail to take up these issues and even on occasion to say, well, you know, that Martin Luther King, he's, he's a communist or he's controlled by the communists or he's playing into the hands of the communists, which was a common thing in those days. I began to wonder whether maybe there was something fundamentally wrong with the belief system and the very conviction that there is a God. So I struggled with that. Hmm. What are the things that convince you that there is a God? Well, I think part of it was that I also became somewhat disillusioned with the secularism, that the answers that were being given, for example, and I'm going to say this in very overtly Christian ways, but I can still remember being so inspired, being with unbelievers, secular Jews, other kinds of people of different Christian faith, many of whom were of a very different theology than mine. And we'd do a civil rights demonstration, and then we'd stand around and hold hands, and we'd sing, we shall overcome, we shall overcome. Deep in my heart, I believe we shall overcome someday. I found that very inspiring. But you know, a few years later, I began to see many of those people drift away. They became cynical. They didn't have anything that sustained that Mm. commitment. And all of a sudden it hit me one day, and it was like a a profound aha experience. We shall overcome because Jesus Christ has overcome sin and death, you know? It's not just, well, deep in my heart I've got this feeling or this wishful thinking, but my sense that, as Martin Luther King himself said, that the that the God of the universe, his will is, is bent toward justice, that things are going to end up okay, as, as difficult as it might be on the way. 
And so that profound sense that God is in charge and that justice is a part of the very fabric of the universe that God created, to me, that brought me back. It seems to me that Christianity, to be what it can be, has to be lived not only individually but in a community that Christ often or essentially requires us to care for each other, to look after each other. You could have been a pastor in a community. What took you towards the community of theology in academia? Well, that's a, that's a wonderful question. Uh, I think it comes down, it's a good old Protestant notion of calling. I, mm. I just <clears throat> never felt called to be a minister, a pastor. When I, was, uh, I started college, I was going to be a minister like my dad, and that was all the family expectations, you know. <laughs> but then I started studying literature, and I really liked that, you know, the 18th century British novel. Wow. And I started studying philosophy, read David Hume and Rene Descartes and Immanuel Kant. And it just hit me. These were very important discussions, and I enjoyed those. And I had some very inspiring teachers who were good at that kind of thing. And I can still remember thinking of a, a specific teacher that I had thinking, I could do that. Mm. Uh, he, he's exciting. He inspires me. And then I'd feel kind of bad about it because I'm supposed to be a minister and not teaching Immanuel Kant in class. But gradually I realized that maybe that sense, when you're, you're thinking about what God wants you to do with your life, you also have to take the things that you actually like, you feel good about, you, you're inspired mm. by, seriously. Maybe those are hints from God. That's right. Yeah. So that uh, all of that came together as a sense that maybe God was calling me to be an academic. Now, I never wanted to be an administrator, so that was another <laughs> big thing in my life. That... Which you spent decades doing. Yeah. Well, Paul says some have gifts for administration. Yeah, I so. know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What did you feel like the purpose for a theological education was? Yeah. You could be a pastor and you could lead a congregation without having attended. Yeah. Well, I think we need, you know, what we Protestants and Catholics call seminaries, the theological school, the, the, the educational community where people are, are studying. And there are basically four areas of theological education. You study the, the history of, of the church. You study biblical studies, the Old Testament and New Testament in, in our world. You study systematic theology, that is uh, God and Christ and salvation. Then you study the practices of ministry, counseling and preaching and various things like that. I find that a Christian community uh, really needs teaching. That means that there need to be leaders in the community who are grounded in the faith mm. and who are approaching issues. I mean, they're the questions that we that we face today, something like artificial intelligence, you know. I remember talking to a group of undergraduates about artificial intelligence and all of their questions had to do with Netflix. <laughs> I mean, robots, computers that think, and people sort of evolving beyond the present stage of humanity, you know. And I'm thinking, yeah, these are important insights. But the Bible teaches that human beings are created in the very image of God. What does that mean? And when we're asking questions about artificial intelligence, would there ever be a point that we want to preach a sermon to a robot? And convert them? Telling that robot to repent and, <laughs> and, to, and to live a life of prayer? If not, what does that tell us about spirituality in our own life? You know? and, mm. 
And I think there need to be some people, and I don't think all people need to be theologians by any stretch of the imagination, but we're getting this word a lot these days, the influencers. And there need to be influencers in communities of faith. My Muslim friends are, are really wrestling with this because there's a whole generation of young people who are discovering imams online who are preaching a radical Islamist, very violent. Many young people are attracted to that. And how do we counter that in the local mosque or in the, the school or at a university? <laughs> these are big issues that the Muslim community is, is facing these days. And uh, it's true for all of us, really. They're looking for a purpose. Yeah. And maybe not finding it, they think, in their life as it is. That's right. Yeah. Interesting. And so there need to be some people who have immersed themselves in the study of the scriptures, who have immersed themselves in the history of the church and have thought in disciplined ways about what it means to be created in the image of God and the work of Christ on the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit. These are very important issues. So if you're speaking with members of your own community, there's something tribal, I think, in our natural instincts, maybe for protection, maybe just we love the familiar, the people around us. And for many people, it's uncomfortable to even think that people of another faith, for instance, a whole other tradition like Islam, have some element of truth. Yeah. So you are known for having dialogue with Catholics, with Jews, for LDS people, and Islam. What drew you there? Well, thank you. That's, a, that's such a, an interesting question, and it's one that I, I constantly reflect on in my own life. It really has to do with a desire to learn. I mean, if, if you say, do you believe that we have things to learn from Muslims? The answer to that is, well, let's, let's talk to them and find out. I mean, you <laughs> don't just say ahead of time, you don't. And what gives me the confidence to enter into a conversation with a Muslim? What gives me the confidence that I could learn something from them? Well, from my Christian point of view, they're created in God's image. They're my fellow human beings. And I believe there's something element of, of the divine yearning that's in their hearts. And furthermore, they've been treated in bad ways by my kind of people, and they may have some things at least to teach me about some of the defects in my own religion, you know? I had a young rabbi come to my office one time, and we had a wonderful discussion. We were working on a project on First Amendment issues, Christians and Jews. And about a week later, he wrote me a note. And it was a powerful experience for me to read this note. He said, I want to thank you for helping me to be safe to feel safe with a Christian. And he said, I was raised in a small town in Minnesota. We were the only Jewish family in town. I went to the public school. And in those days, the teacher in a public school was typically a Lutheran, a Scandinavian Lutheran. And she would begin each day by saying, boys and girls, let's pray the prayer that our Lord Jesus taught us to pray. And I had been instructed by my rabbi in the next town over that I could not pray that prayer. He said, it became very obvious that I did not stand and say the Lord's Prayer in a class of 25 other kids. He said, on the way home, kids would throw stones at me, and they would call me a Christ killer. Yeah. And he said, when I heard that I was supposed to go and meet with the president of an evangelical Christian seminary, and I walked onto that campus, he said, I got to tell you, I broke out in a cold sweat. You know, all of that childhood yeah. stuff come back. Now, that was a learning experience for me. 
that when I'm talking to my Jewish friends, there are 2,000 years of persecution, of bullying in schoolyards, you know, mm. of herding them into gas chambers. I mean, that's pretty horrible stuff. And at the very least, we need to hear those stories, but also hear the stories about how their faith sustained them in Auschwitz and in schoolyards and, and the like. And that there may be things that God is eager to have us learn from dialogue with our Jewish friends. And furthermore, our Jewish friends are experts on a big chunk of the Bible that uh, they often know a lot more about than we do. It's a learning experience. Well, it seems to me that you have not found this to be a watering down of your personal faith in any way to associate with believers from other traditions. No. I don't think so at all. I mean, I really do believe that strong convictions are important and that the best kind of dialogues, I think, are between people who have strong convictions that are at play in our disagreements, Mm -hmm. you know. So I've had almost 20 years now of dialogue with my LDS friends, and we have learned so much from each other. We still disagree about who Joseph Smith was and about the nature of authority and Mm -hmm. authoritative texts and a lot of things, but we've also learned a lot from each other. I find no contradiction between having strong convictions and also being able to have trusting friendships, good relationships, and learning experiences from people of other religious faiths. That whole concept you said of uh, do we have anything in common with these other people, well, let's go ask them instead of just deciding ourselves. To me, that is right from the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers. Absolutely. You've got it right. That's one of the key texts in this regard. Mm. If you don't mind a personal question, what are your own either rituals or observances that make you feel in touch with the divine? It certainly has to do with uh, gathering with the community of faith. Mm. Uh, Church is very important. I'm still the old preacher's kid who likes a little bit of anonymity in church. (laughs) I don't want to be held up as an example, and it bothers me when a preacher says, oh, boy, you know, when I saw you out there, I really worried about my sermon. I want to say, you know, there are times that I just, I come to church and I just need to know that God still loves me. So that's very important. But also prayer, and prayer as conversation with God, not just my sort of telling God stuff, but also times of silence in which I listen for things that God might be impressing upon me. And then the study of the scriptures, and I really learned to love the Psalms, as we often say, the prayer book of the church, you know, because the Psalms, and this is especially important to me, the Psalms capture all kinds of moods. From celebratory to just lamenting everything. Yeah. And so there are times that I feel kind of angry with God. And you know what? That's okay. Because you know what the psalmist says at times? God, I'm kind of angry with you. You know, <laughs> Are you asleep? Why aren't you listening to me? You know, I've been asking you, and I just don't hear anything in response. So that the Bible itself gives us permission to be honest in the presence of God. And to me, that's been one of the great moments in my life is to come to realize that if I don't feel like praying, then the best prayer that I can pray is, God, I just want to tell you, I don't feel like praying today. And And you still made a connection. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) I really like that philosophy. How do you perceive direction or answers to prayer? Yeah. Well, I have not had um, 
oral communication from God in the sense that I've heard God talk. I haven't had first visions, uh, those kinds of encounters, angelic visitations. Uh, For me, it's often been providential things that I will wake up struggling with something. And uh, I had an Ethiopian student at Fuller Seminary. One day I was in my office and I was really disturbed about an employee issue. And I just had a hard time praying about it, and I didn't know what to do. And I thought, I'm going to go home. Uh, it was like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm just getting out of here. And I walked down to my parking lot to where my car was, and an Ethiopian student came up to me and said, Dr. Mayo, I was just working in the library, and I just had this visual image of you going to your car And I just sensed that God wanted me to come out and tell you that I had just prayed for you and that it's going to be okay. And I I can't explain that. But either that was such an odd coincidence of a guy who has crazy things (laughs) going on in his head, or that was the Lord coming to me through another person and just saying, Richard, it's going to be okay. Is that faith, your choice to accept that as something from God? Yes, yes. I, I, I think I can imagine one of the great new atheists, you know, Richard Dawkins saying, that's wishful thinking. Uh, who knows what was going on with that kid? And uh, okay, but in terms of my journey, as I put that piece into my larger journey of faith, I want to say this is one of those moments where, where God really reached out to me and said, I'm here. It's okay. And those are the moments that we we need to celebrate, I think, in our journeys of faith. When you speak to groups like a campus group, are there things that encourage you that in spite of you started with a whole list of things that didn't have to be dealt with 30, 20, maybe even 10 years ago, various issues? Are there things that you see in rising generations that give you some hope for working things out or a generation's relationship to yeah. God. I am really excited about this generation. I met with some BYU students today. I was so impressed with, on the one hand, their deep commitment to the faith and their willingness to ask questions and their eagerness to really wrestle with important issues. I think that this is a generation, I, I find this in the students who are coming to study theology at a place like Fuller Seminary. They're concerned about the environment, and they're concerned about it because it's God's creation, and they're concerned about that, and they're concerned about immigrants, and they're concerned about immigrants because these are real human beings who, little children on the borders who are are suffering. They're concerned about their lesbian sisters, not because they've gone liberal and all that kind of thing, but that they, they see these as often lonely people who in their own brokenness are reaching out for people they can trust and mm. intimacy. And they're often very disappointed in their parents for not seeing the creation, not seeing the way we treat animals, for example. You know? I mean, I have students who get all upset about the slaughter of elephants. I admire that because they're taking God's creatures very seriously. And so I, I am very hopeful about this generation. I hear a lot of trashing of the millennials and the post-millennials, but from my point of view, uh, and even that generation that says, 
you know, I'm I'm not a religious person as such, but I do consider myself very very spiritual. Mm-hmm. I don't belong to a church or I don't see the need for that. There's something powerful at work in their lives that we need to learn from and connect with. I want more. I, I want them to experience the community of faith. I want them to experience the the teachings of the Christian tradition. But I also want to learn from them about the failures of our churches, the failures of my generation and past generations to be the kind of people that they they want to be. So rather than blaming them for the lack of a commitment to to ask the question why. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's a kind of uh, almost interfaith dialogue, uh, also an well, intergenerational dialogue. The title of your address tonight on campus is Convicted Civility. And I wondered if you'd comment on that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I got that delightful phrase from the Lutheran historian from the University of Chicago, Martin Marty. One of his little books, I was reading this in the late 90s. And I've been working as a philosopher. I've been working on issues of politics, political thought, the nature of the state, and all the rest. But he said in this this little book, and every once in a while you run across a sentence or two that kind of shape your future direction. But he said there are a lot of people in contemporary world who are very civil, but they don't have very strong convictions. And there are a lot of people who have strong convictions, but they aren't very civil. <laughs> and what we need is convicted civility. And I thought, that's an important challenge, mm-hmm. you know, because there, a lot of the conviction in the 90s was Catholics killing Protestants, Protestants killing Catholics in Northern Ireland, Christians and Muslims at war with each other in Bosnia-Herzegovina, mm-hmm. Jews and Muslims at war in the Middle East. There was a lot of conviction, but certainly not a an engagement with uh, a friendly, peaceful engagement with people with whom we disagree. And uh, so I set about the task of trying to find ways to convince people of faith that conviction and civility can go together. I can't see your shoes, but I'm thinking of the scripture, how beautiful are the feet upon the mountains of those that publish peace, which which is you. What an honor to have you in today. Thank you so much. And it's an honor for me to be in conversation with you. I appreciate the work that you're doing so much. That's our time for today. We're grateful to our guest, Dr. Richard Mao of the Fuller Theological Seminary, for generously sharing his stories and his faith. You can hear this and all of our episodes online on demand at our website, byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Email us at ingoodfaith at byu.edu. Our Twitter is at ingoodfaithbyu. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you join me again soon, right here, In Good Faith.